Hey, good morning. Thank you for joining us for a recent sermon from Harvest Baptist Church. I'm Mark Likens. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. We're a Bible-believing, gospel-centered, grace-driven church family right here in Natrona Heights, Pennsylvania. And if you'd like to learn more about our ministry, you can visit us on Facebook or at harvestbaptist.info. Now, I hope you enjoyed today's sermon. It's my prayer that this will encourage and equip you in your relationship with God. Amen. I love that idea of, of remembering, especially because we're going to have communion today. We're going to take some time and we're going to remember what the Lord has done for us. Uh, if you are new here, let me stop for just a minute and say a big welcome to you. I'm Pastor Mark. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and uh, we love it when new people come our way. And I would love to invite you to our Intro to Harvest class that we do every month, but I'd especially love to invite you to it today because our class is today. So the June class, Intro to Harvest, happens right after the service for an hour, uh, right on the other side of that wall, in the cafeteria. So I know that some of you are signed up for that. Some of you are not signed up for that, but uh, you can still just pop in. We have snacks, we have childcare, and that class just lets you know, here's uh, our church, uh, here's who we are, here's what we believe, here's what's important to us, and just helps you know if this is the right place for you and your family. So uh, come there if that is of interest to you. We would love to host you uh, for an hour after this service. Well, I do want to kind of celebrate a few things that are happening in our church uh, that just happened, are happening right now, and are about to happen. Uh, number one would be uh, what just happened, although a lot of things happened throughout the course of a week for us. We stay very busy, uh, but the most recent one was actually yesterday. We had an event for our deaf community, and it was a great time. We call it Fantastic Saturday, and I think 55 showed up for this. Uh, not all of them deaf, about half deaf and half hearing, uh, but it was a great time for a few hours. We had uh, some teaching, some Bible training, had lunch together together, all those sorts of things, and we had uh, two individuals that put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ during that event yesterday, and we had another, that's worth celebrating, absolutely it is. There were another uh, dozen to 15 or so that said, hey, I've, I know the Lord, but I've really been away from the Lord. I need to give my life back to the Lord. And uh, not many churches have a deaf ministry. They say about 2.2% of churches have one, and I'm, I'm grateful that we do. I'm grateful for Roy, who's over here, and Yvette, and, and so many that, uh, that are a part of that. And, uh, and it was a joy. It really was a joy to host that event yesterday. Of course, today, not only do we have church, we also have communion. And we do have, if you noticed, uh, we listen to your complaints. You, if, if, you, if you ever question if we listen to your complaints, this cup is proof that we do, okay? So I know that many of you for several months now have suffered from what uh, we've termed PCSD, uh, pre-communion stress disorder, where <laughs> am I going to be able to open this up and separate these things? And theoretically, these are easier to open. If they're not, tell us, and we'll go back to the way we used to do it and just pass cups around and all that sort of stuff. So if they're not easier, let us know. But we spent five cents more a cup for you guys because you're worth it, okay? You're worth it today. So we love you. We five cents love you. That's how much we love you. So I'm just kidding. We love you a lot more than that. Um, of course, today is uh, Pentecost Sunday. How many of you knew before you walked in that today is what's kind of dubbed Pentecost Sunday? How many knew that? 
I thought it would be the minority, okay? So uh, this is the, the Sunday closest to Pentecost uh, where uh, there's been a tradition in many churches. Uh, I, I don't know that celebrate is the right word, but remembering uh, that the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and endued the apostles with power and thinking about the Holy Spirit and his work in our lives. And I would encourage you in light of Pentecost Sunday uh, to think about the Holy Spirit, to thank God for sending the comforter, the helper, the spirit, Uh, But to pray and to say, Holy Spirit, I need you working in my life. I could use more of your fruit, right, the fruit of the Spirit. I could use more love and more joy and more peace. How many of you could use a peace or a love or a joy upgrade in your life, right? Well, Holy Spirit, right? So I need more patience. I need more gentleness. I I need more long-suffering. So pray and ask for his help, but also take some time and remember, not just today, but on a daily basis, Uh, that the Holy Spirit of God, if you know Jesus as your Savior, He is a forever gift to you. He is there. He is in your life. And remembering His presence in your life is actually a very good spiritual discipline to employ on a regular basis. So I hope that you will, uh, the sermon today is is not on Pentecost Sunday, but I hope that that you'll take that, that you'll remember that. And then, of course, coming up is tonight, is our night of worship at 6. And uh, we we did the, we've done our night of worship now, and we started it for a number of reasons, but one of them was uh, we have a Thursday Bible study, and it is, it is mostly uh, women that are at least 40 years or older. I'll put it that way. They, they tend to be uh, not real young in their 20s, but a lot of our widows and stuff are in that Thursday Bible study. And I can't tell you how many times I peeked my head in there. Kathy Smith, you lead that Bible study. I peeked my head in there, and they would say, Pastor, can we have a hymn sing? Can we have a sing-along? Can we have a night, whatever you want to call it, can we do one of those? So uh, a little less than a year ago, we started doing these every three or four months uh, that we'll do one of these. And they've been so much fun. And uh, those ladies have, have thanked me over and over again and have hugged my neck for that. But uh, it's not just for them. It's for all of us tonight at 6 to, uh, to come out and to worship the Lord. It'll be a great time and just a, a lot of singing, a lot of music. Maybe 10 minutes of a devotional, but really a lot of music. And uh, we'll spend an hour together and it'll be a great time. So that's kind of what has happened, what is happening, what's about to happen all in a weekend here at the church. And uh, thank you for being a part of it. Thank you for giving. You made the fantastic Saturday happen yesterday because of your generosity, the food and the bringing in the guest missionary and all that sort of stuff was because of you. So I really do appreciate it. Uh, Hebrews chapter number 10. Go there in your Bibles. We are ending this series on Hebrews 11. And I wasn't planning on doing this originally, but uh, I thought it fitting the more I studied Hebrews 11 to take the bookends of that chapter, to take what set up Hebrews 11, the end of chapter 10, and then what concludes chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 12, and to look at these bookends on either side of the chapter and to try to understand the big picture of why this chapter was given, this great hall of faith, why it was given to us. Uh, Next week, we will begin a study uh, through the book of 1 John, and then after that, Lord willing, we'll hit the the, uh, book of Revelation in late summer, early fall. But I'm really looking forward to hitting 1 John, a book that is, I think will be so timely for our church and for many of you, a book just about having confidence and a sure standing before God. But today we're in Hebrews 10. So here is, uh, in a nutshell, the reason why the book of Hebrews existed and really why the end of chapter 10 and chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12 exist. And I'd put it to you this way. Uh, years ago, I took a trip with a small group from our church uh, to Vanuatu on a mission trip. I know we've taken three or four different trips over there. Uh, it's a very inconvenient trip because it's about as far away as you can get from here as possible. 
uh, to get to Vanuatu, you drive to the Pittsburgh airport, of course, early for your flight. You park, uh, you, you go through the boarding process, and you get on an airplane, and you fly to the West Coast, Ontario, San Francisco, something like that. Generally, you'll have a long layover on the West Coast, and you will take a red eye out of, say, San Francisco to Sydney, Australia, and that's a long flight, 14 hours. If you've ever been on a plane for three or four or five hours, you know how old that gets. Uh, when you're on a plane for 14 or 15 hours, it gets really old, really fast. But you fly to Sydney, there you have a layover, you have to go through customs, and then you have to recheck your bags and all that rigmarole, and then you fly generally to the capital of Vanuatu, and then from there you get on yet another plane, a small plane, and you fly to the island that we were trying to get to, Espirito Santo. You finally get to the island. And you would think that we're here, you know, we can be done, but you're not done. It's been a day and a half of travel, but you still have to go further. And so you jump in a jeep or a truck and you, and you trek through the jungles for hours and it's very slow going, these massive, and it's not paved roads, it's just dirt trails and ruts and you're going over little rivers and over logs and all this stuff and eventually you'll get to a river, more likely than not, that is so full that you can't drive your truck through it. And you have to park your truck and then the last leg of your journey is there. You get to hike, and you get to hike. And some of you are sitting here thinking, like, I'm never going on a mission trip. <laughs> that sounds so miserable. And uh, going on a mission trip, it, it, it's a great time. They're not all this tough or arduous. But uh, you get to the river. This is actually, you can see in this picture, this is a picture that I took on that trip. We had just got across the river, and you can see off in the distance the trucks back along the, the jungle line there that we had left. And that particular river was about chest deep. And it really wasn't that difficult to cross because you could touch the bottom about chest deep and it felt like you were moonwalking. You could kind of just hop, you know, along the riverbed. But I was surprised. We got through that river. Nobody died, thank the Lord. And we got to another little river or this, it's almost a creek. It was about knee high, maybe a little bit above my knees. And it didn't look like it was going that fast. Uh, big rocks on the bottom and we had to walk across this. So you take off your shoes, uh, and, you, and you're walking across this. And I was shocked at how difficult it was for me to stand up in this river. The current, it didn't look like it was that fast or that powerful. But between the, the rocks and the stability there and the current, it just was pushing and pushing. And I was surrounded by all these guys who live in the jungles of Vanuatu. They, their term for them is knee vans, these knee vans who do this every day. And they're just, you know, going along like it was nothing. They were so stable. And I felt like a one-year-old toddler that was just toppling over left and right, left and right. And I was, I was just so not stable. It felt like I was standing on jello. And the reason that I tell you that story is because that's the reason that the author wrote the book of Hebrews. He's writing to believers who have put their faith in the Lord. They have suffered a lot of persecution, a lot of tough times, and it's become very difficult for them to stand. And he is sensing that they are wobbly, he is sensing that they are about to topple over and to give up and to call it quits and to throw in the towel. And he writes to them really the, the big thrust of the book and the big thrust of 10 and 11 and 12 is stand strong, be firm, be stable, endure, be faithful. That's the big thrust. And I want you to see that, but I also want you to see the two tools that he gives to these believers. If you, he gives them a lot, but the main focus is on two tools 
that he gives to these believers that will help them be strong, sturdy, and faithful. And I want to read chapter 10 and chapter 12, just a little portion of each, and I want you to see this. So you're going to have to hang with me today, I'll tell you up front. We're going to read this passage of Scripture, and then we're going to reread it, and then we're going to reread it again. So we're going to read it a lot, but I, I want you to see what's happening in the text, and I want you to understand it. So chapter number 10, if you would, look at it there with me. Verse 32 says, Call to remembrance the former days in which, after ye were illuminated, and if you're in the habit of underlining phrases, underline this phrase in your Bible, ye endured a great fight of afflictions. Partly while you were made a gazing stock, both by the reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used, for ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourself that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance. Then you can underline the first phrase of verse 35, cast not away therefore your confidence, don't throw away your faith, which hath great recompense of reward. Underline this in verse 36. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Then underline all of verse 39. We are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe not to the, or do believe to the saving of the soul. There's a lot I could say on that verse, and I'll hit it a little bit, and, and I'll hit it a little bit in a little bit, if that makes sense. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Of course, then you go through all of chapter 11. We've preached through that now for weeks and weeks. And then you get to chapter 12. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which does so easily beset us. And, underline this, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, you can underline this, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, and then last underline, consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. All right, so if you were just to take the things that we just underlined, you would find this, you endured a great fight of afflictions, don't cast away your confidence, you have need of patience, we are not the people that draw back unto perdition, we are the people that believe to salvation, Jesus endured the cross, Jesus endured the, the uh, contradiction of sinners, and you don't be weary, and you don't faint in your minds. Get the, get the thrust? The idea of standing strong, being confident, going forward, uh, not being weary, not fainting, that's what he's trying to communicate. That's why Hebrews 11 exists, is to try to get, a, get across this point. But he doesn't just say, do this. Right? This is your duty. You're a Christian. Suck it up. That's not what he says. He says, I want to give you some help. And if you look at the text and you will study it together, he nestles inside of it these two tools that he keeps alternating back and forth between. That says, this is what will help you stand strong. This is what will give you stability. This is what will help you be faithful. And the two tools are, recall yesterday's provision, look back, and then look forward, rest in tomorrow's promise. Those are the two. So let's understand both of them together. The first idea is recalling yesterday's provision. So let's rescan this with this idea in mind. If you looked at verse number 32, he started by saying, I want you to call to, what's the word? 
Oh, that was weak. You're better than that. I want you, look at the word, verse 32, call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions. All right, here's what he's saying. I want you to stop, and I want you to go back in your mind's eye, and I want you to remember that when you were illuminated, when the spiritual lights came on, when you, the penny dropped, and all of a sudden you now have saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, when that happened to you, what happened? And he does not say, oh, it was a parade and a bed of roses. He says, you endured a great fight of afflictions. Now, that doesn't sound very fun, does it? He says, I want you to remember that you did, past tense, you did endure. And then he goes on to say, here's what you endured, verse 33. Part of it was that you were made a gazing stock, and you had reproaches, and you uh, had afflictions. So part of it is that people besmirched your name, people ostracized you, uh, people reproached you, people actually afflicted you. He goes on to say later that you actually suffered the loss of worldly good and that they took your stuff from you and they exploited you. He says, so part of it's that, and part of it, he says, at the end of verse number 33, is that you became the companions of people that were so used. So you get the picture? Part of this is that you're suffering. Part of this is now you're associated with, with Christians that are suffering, and now uh, they, they just kind of put you in with them, part and parcel, and they look at all of you with the same negative connotations, and you are suffering because of this, and what he's trying to say is remember, you did it. Remember the affliction, remember the fight, remember the, the great trial that came your way. You did endure. He's trying to say you've done this before. All right, and I know, I know it's the same song, but it's the second verse. We've been here. We've done this. You've endured before. You've pressed on before. You've been faithful before. So remember that God gave you the stamina to stick it out then and help that or have that help you have the stamina to stick it out now. This would be very similar to perhaps uh, a mother birthing a baby and then being pregnant with the second or the third child, right? If you're pregnant with a second or a third child, then you have this, this catch-22. On one hand, you know what to expect in full because you've been there and you've done that and you know how terrible it is. So there's actually, in some ways, more fear associated with it. But on the other hand, there's actually more confidence and more peace or more stability that can come your way because you can tell yourself, I've done this before, right? I got through it once, I can get through it again, it's not going to be fun, but I have endured a great fight of affliction before with baby number one, so I can do this, God designed my body to do this, I, I can push through it, right? And you can have a confidence, because you have been there and you have done that, right? And that's just, this is what he's saying. I know this isn't easy. I know it's not fun. I know it's not what you want. I know it's not a bed of roses. But you've done it before. And God's held you strong before. And God's provided for you before. So I want you to call that to remembrance. I want you to remember that. And then he says this in verse 37 and 38. And if you just read through the passage, it may strike you as disjointed. It may strike you as like, what is he saying? I don't even understand how this, make, how this made sense to what he was saying before. But here's what he says in 37 and 38. For yet a little while, he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. 
So in this verse and in the next verse, he's communicating the idea of perseverance of the saints or of once saved, always saved. He is communicating that, but what he's doing more fundamentally is he is, he is quoting the Old Testament. And this, it takes some explaining, but you need to have this sink in. It's important. He is taking the Hebrew people, this is who the book's written to, the Hebrews, and he's going back to the Hebrew documents, the scriptures, and he is pulling quotes from those documents and inserting them into the conversation. And if you were a Hebrew person, you knew intuitively what he was doing, and it all made sense very quickly. But if you are removed from that or you're not very familiar with, say, the book of Habakkuk, which is the main thrust of this, in, in the story that he's referencing the most, then it may be lost on you. It'd be like this. It'd be like if you and I, as American citizens, were having a conversation about uh, freedom and uh, civil responsibility and rights and privileges that we should have as Americans. And in the middle of the conversation, I just threw in, without really any context around it, I just said, well, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? All men are created equal. Now, I don't have to read you the whole Constitution. I don't have to take all that surrounds that. I can really just lob that into the conversation. And because we're both citizens, because we both have some familiarity with the Constitution, we can immediately just kind of pick up on what I'm saying without really expounding. And this is what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's taking these snippets from these very familiar documents, and he's throwing them into the conversation. And they know what he's saying, but most of us don't. Because we're like, I, don't, I didn't know you were quoting somebody, and I don't even know who you're quoting. Who's Habakkuk? And the story of Habakkuk is a man who's a prophet, and he has a beef with God. And he starts his book, and he says, God, why? Why are you doing this? God, why are you not doing this? God, it doesn't make sense to me, and I don't understand. And God, by the way, how long? How long is this going to go on? It feels like forever. You should, you should have dealt with this already. There's all this evil and there's all this injustice, and you should have dealt with this already. And God and Habakkuk have this long conversation, and they duke it out. And God eventually comes to Habakkuk and says, Habakkuk, listen, I'm just. It's coming. It's not going to tarry very long. My justice and my punishment and all that is coming, hold your horses and be patient. And Habakkuk, I will remind you that the just shall live by faith. And that's what Hebrews quotes here, is this story in Habakkuk where God changes none of his circumstances, but God reminds him that he is in control, that he is faithful, that he is on the throne, that he's not going to let injustice go unpunished, that the just people live by faith. And Habakkuk eventually comes to terms with this and re begins to rejoice in the Lord. He actually, at the very end of his book, I'm going to paraphrase it, but Habakkuk ends with this hymn of praise and faith. And he says, look, if the whole world around me crumbles, if everything caves in, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. I will trust in him. And he says, here's, here's how he ends his book. God is going to make my feet like the hind's feet, and he's going to make me to stand upon the high places. More or less what he says is, ever see those mountain goats or those uh, animals that are in the cliffs of the mountain, and there's like an inch of a ledge, and they stand on those, and they hop on those, and they just like scale the side of the mountain, and you're like, how are you not falling down right now, right? He says, God's going to make me like that. 
It may feel like I just have a little bit to stand on, but he is going to make me sturdy and stable, and he is going to produce a stability in me that is like those mountain goats on the side of the mountains that people may look and say, I don't know how you could be stable in that environment or under those situations or circumstances, but I am stable because of God. And And the author of Hebrews says, remember that? Remember Habakkuk? Remember what God did in his life and how God produced the stability in him? And then he goes to chapter number 11, which I hate to describe the chapter this way, but it's, it's more or less, if you've ever heard Alan Jackson's country song, Remember When, it's like that. It's like remember when, remember when, remember when, remember when, remember when Abel had faith and it cost him his life? Remember when Abraham had faith and it was scary to go up the mountain? Remember when Moses had faith and he had to forsake everything? Remember all those other people who had faith who were sawn asunder and they were tempted and they were tried and they were not delivered? Remember all those people? But they had stability. Then chapter number 12 happens and he says this, seen we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, people have taken that and they've used it to say, well, what that means is there's all these people in heaven, you know, in the clouds above us and they surround us and they look down at us and they cheer for us. Like, be faithful, way to go, you know. The, the heavenly host, grandpa is, is up in heaven looking down on me and just saying, boy, you can do it. Which really isn't what he's trying to communicate. What he's saying is all the people I just laid out in chapter number 11, Enoch, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of them, We are compassed about with that great cloud of witnesses. We're surrounded by those people. And it's not them looking at us. It's us looking at them. It's us remembering their faith. It's us remembering how God delivered them. It's us remembering that. It's taking those trips down the spiritual memory lane. So then he says, let us then not just consider that God has helped us be faithful. Let's not just consider Habakkuk. Let's just not consider these stories of old. But then he says, let us consider who? Jesus. Considered him who endured such contradiction of sinners. Why? Lest ye be weary and faint in your minds. Okay? That's a long Bible lesson on what is he trying to say. He's trying to say something very simple. Be stable. Be strong. Be faithful. How? Look back. Go back to the spiritual mountaintops. Go back to the provision of God in your life. Go back to his loving faithfulness and his kindness. Even if you don't feel like he's being loving or faithful or kind today, and we all reach points where we feel that way sometimes. Go look back. And if you can't look back on your own life, which you probably can, look back on other people's lives. Look at their stories. Look at their testimonies. And if that doesn't work, look at Jesus. It was hard to go to the cross, but he did it, and he was faithful, and God delivered him, and God has put him at the right hand. Think about those things. Think about the provision of God. What he's saying is there is power in remembering, and this is something that actually we all intuitively know. You know, I've done a number of death visits over the years. A a death call or a death visit for a pastor is where someone has just, just, just died, or they are about to die and you go spend some time with the family. And if you've never done this, it would seem very scary or threatening. Most people think that would be the least, that, that would be the least enjoyable part of the job, but it's really the opposite. It is a privilege to be there in those moments, and it is in many ways refreshing nine times out of 10. Because what will happen nine times out of 10 is the family will sit down and they will stop 
and they will remember. It is, it is in many ways more powerful than the funeral service itself where people just begin to share stories and testimonies and memories and laughter and pull out the, the old albums and look at the old pictures and sit around and do that and do that. And you know what happens in those really tough, dark moments when people sit around and they remember a life well lived? It begins to heal them. It begins to help them. It begins to give them some sort of stability that they didn't have in the moments prior to that. If you have ever gone through marital counseling, you probably at some point in time were assigned a homework assignment that is, the assignment goes like this. I want you, husband, to go home and I want you to write down three, four, or five of your favorite memories from your dating, engagement, or married life with your spouse. Positive memories, write them down. And you, spouse, I want you, uh, wife, to go home, and I want you to write down three, four, or five memories. And I want you to go on a date. I know things are rocky. I know things aren't great right now, but I want you to go on a date. And I want you to talk about nothing else. You're not allowed any other conversation. Nothing else except to talk about your memories and why they are fond to you and your memories and why they are fond to you. And a counselor will oftentimes assign that uh, homework assignment to the couple because he knows or she knows the power that exists in that couple remembering the good times. But there's a chance, even if the flames of love are completely quenched, there's a chance that that will spark a flame. Remembering. And here's the thing, the opposite's true. When you stop remembering, when you begin to suffer from spiritual amnesia, and you begin to forget what it was like when you put your faith in Jesus and what it was like that day you got saved, and you begin to forget how he delivered and how he helped and how he was faithful and how he showed up. And how, you begin to forget those things. It is extremely detrimental. It makes you weaker as a Christian. Paul Bunyan, I think, knew this well. In his classic text, Pilgrim's Progress, he tells the story of a lot of characters. Christian, of course, is the main character who is headed towards the celestial city. And Christian at one point in time has a conversation with a guy named Hopeful. And him and Hopeful begin to talk about Mr. Temporary. Mr. Temporary was someone who uh, had all of this energy for the Lord, but then did not remain faithful and was not stable and backslid and fell away. And Hopeful asked Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, he says, why did this happen? What, what was the sequence of events? What took place to lead Mr. Temporary to be Mr. Temporary? And Bunyan, using just his wisdom of what he had seen over the years, begins to describe what happened, and he gives a nine-fold process of backsliding. And I will not read it to you, but I will summarize it for you very quickly. Here are his nine steps. First of all, they withdraw their thoughts from the Lord. Second, they give up their personal spiritual disciplines. They begin to stop personal, private prayer and Bible reading, those sorts of things. Third, they shun the company of warm-hearted Christians, and they only want to be around the Christians who are cold and relatively indifferent. Fourth, they forsake public duty, things like church. Fifth, they begin to find fault with other Christians, and they begin to look for chinks in their armor, and they become very good at finding all the faults in all the other people. Sixth, 
They begin to associate with worldly-minded people, loose-minded people. Seven, they begin to give way to carnal and lustful practices in secret. Eight, those secret practices become very open and they flaunt their open sin. And then nine, they completely backslide and he puts it as they perish miserably. But I found it very intriguing that in Bunyan's observation of the Christian life, he said where Mr. Temporary starts is by ceasing to remember. That was number one for him. The thoughts stop thinking about God. They don't have a, I need thee every hour. They don't even have an, I need thee every day. Maybe I come to church and I get a little bit, but Monday, my thoughts aren't on God. And Tuesday, my thoughts aren't on God. And I don't remember, and I don't recall, and I don't go back. And he said, that'll start it. And what the author of Hebrews says is, number one, tool number one, remember his provision. Go back and think about what God has done. Think about his faithfulness. Think about it in the past. But number two is very similar, but it's different, is rest in tomorrow's promises. He says go back and look, but then go forward and think about what awaits you in the future. We'll scan the text one more time. You ready? All right, put your thinking caps on. Here we go. Verse number 34. Here is the, the other tool, the other idea. Look forward. So he says, you had compassion of me and my bonds. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, but we know that they were in prison for their faith in Christ at some point in time. You took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves this, here it is, that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. See what he says? You could take it and you could be stable because you knew what was coming. You knew that in heaven there's a better reward. Verse 35, don't throw away your confidence. Why? It has great recompense of reward. It pays off. Serving Jesus pays. Living for Jesus pays. Uh, being faithful to Jesus pays. That's what he's saying. There's a payday someday. So, so be focused on that. Know the future. Know that it'll pay. Verse 36, for ye have needed patience. After that ye have done the will of God, what is it? Ye might receive the promise in the future. See what he's doing? Look ahead, look ahead, look ahead. Heaven, rewards, the payoff, the, the promises. Look ahead to those things. Chapter 12 does the same thing. Looking unto Jesus, the author, past tense of our faith, and the finisher, future tense of our faith, right? He which hath begun a good work in you will, will perform it. He says, look ahead, he will do this. Think about Jesus. He endured the cross, passed, but he's also set down at the right hand of the Father and he rules and he reigns. Think to the future, look at that. What he is saying is this extremely needful admonition that Christians should be people that engage their brains and look back at the faithfulness of God and look forward to the promises of God and it will fuel you. That's what he's saying. It will be a catalyst in your life if you will consider that and meditate on that and think about it. And this is needful. This is practical. Because if you've lived the Christian life for any length of time, you know that the days come where you are tempted to call it quits. You know there are moments, there are seasons, there are trials. And while we don't readily admit this, it is true. Where it becomes tough and it's no longer the path of least resistance to serve King Jesus, but it seems like the path of the most resistance. And that you are swimming upstream against a cultural current. And if you're not careful, you will become weary, 
you will faint in your mind first. You always quit in your mind before you quit in real life. You will stop, you will throw in the towel, and you will say, I've had it, it's too tough, it's not fair, why, how long, why is it this way, I don't get it, what are you doing in my life, it doesn't make sense, I don't like this trial, I don't like where I'm at, I don't like the suffering that's coming my way, I don't like this, it's too hot in the kitchen, so I'm going to get out. And what he says is, don't get out, don't throw in the towel, don't stop, don't quit, but continue to serve. Continue to be faithful. How? How do I not treat God like a commodity and say, okay, here's my God stock. When it pays and it's profitable, I'll hold on to it. When it's not profitable and it starts to tank, according to me, then I'll, I'll sell it off and I'll get rid of it. How do I not do that? Well, you remember his provision and you rest in his promises. That's how. That's how you stay faithful. There are so many parallels here to the story of Job. Job was the guy that had it made in the shade, right? Life was good. And the devil came and said, God, he won't serve you if you make it tough. Like he only serves you because the sun is shining. <laughs> if you make it tough and you make it dark and you make it hard, then, then he'll, he'll flake out on you. And God said, no, my servant Job, no, he won't. He said, well, let me at him. He said, all right, go at him. So he does, Right? And he afflicts them, and there's death, and there's carnage all in Job's life. And Job, when he gets to the bottom of the bottom of the bottom, says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And he proves that I love God, and I serve God, and I'm faithful no matter what my circumstances are. I don't treat God like like the stock market. That's not what I do. And the author of Hebrews is saying, I want that for you. I want that for your life. And I have to contrast this with what the secular approach to dealing with stress and tough times and trials are. If you pay attention at all to the self-help books or just even to the news or just people you work with and their approach on how to deal with difficult times in your life, generally their approach is going to be disconnect. Amuse yourself, turn it off. I've, I've penciled down here a few things that I've heard on, here's how you deal with trials and with stress factors. So take time off, uh, get a better work, a life balance, uh, exercise, meditate. Of course, meditate, biblical meditation is fill your mind. Uh, secular meditation is empty your mind. Learn relaxation techniques, go to the spa, you know, stuff like that. Uh, block out thoughts of guilt, don't, don't host those. Binge watch a television show and just turn it off. Get away from the news. And I could go on and on. No, is getting away from the news a bad idea? No, not necessarily. Is exercising a bad idea? No. I'm not saying these are all terrible ideas. I'm not saying don't ever take time off or don't have a proper work-life balance. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying this, though. When trials come and tough times come, the modern approach, more or less, is turn your brain off, amuse yourself, amuse. Don't muse all muse, you know, don't muse. Make, it, make sure that you don't do that. Binge something, disconnect. That's how you recharge the batteries. But the biblical admonition on how Christians recharge spiritually, get strong spiritually, put some spiritual rebar in their soul, the way they do that is they don't turn the brain off, they turn the brain on. You actually engage your mind and you begin to think 
about what God's done for you in his faithfulness. And you begin to think about what God will do for you in the future. And you engage it. You put the thinking cap on and say, no, I'm not just going to float down the lazy river mentally. I will put my mind there. I will remember. I will rest in the promises. That is how the stability comes, you think. So, do you do that? Here's the point. This sermon will be a success if, number one, in just a few moments, we can enjoy communion together in a way that is maybe more powerful or more profound than it would have been without the sermon. And number two, you begin to do this on a consistent basis. The whole point of this is aiming at, is there any sort of spiritual discipline or regular rhythm in your life where this happens, or is it just a fluke thing? where someone pushes me into remembering how, God, how good God has been, or it just happens at church when I'm provoked by the song or by the sermon. Is there a Monday through Saturday discipline of this where you have a habit of stopping and thanking God for how good he's been and how faithful he's been and how loving he's been and how kind he's been and looking to the future and saying, God, I thank you that you are going to be faithful and loving and kind and, and true and that those promises are sure. Is that there? And if it's not, get it there. Because this will give you the ability, if you can do this consistently, to ultimately have a habit of taking yourself in hand because there's going to be days where you don't want to do it. There are going to be days where the sun doesn't shine spiritually. There are going to be days where you will be tempted to quit. Or maybe you won't quit in general and say, ah, I'm not a Christian, but you'll quit showing up to church, or you'll quit showing up to group, or you'll quit serving, or you'll quit your prayer life personally, even though no one knows, but you know. Or you'll, you'll quit. You'll stop. You're going to be tempted to do that. And most of the time it's because you don't feel that, that you should or God's loving or you can do it or whatever it is. And if you'll do this enough, you'll eventually have the ability to take yourself in hand and preach to your own heart and say, Self, you're telling me all the wrong things right now and I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you that God has been good and God has been faithful and God has been loving and God has been kind. And even though he doesn't feel like it today, I also know he will be, his promises are sure, he will be true and faithful and kind and loving. And I am going to rest in that and I'm going to tell myself, we're not getting all apocalyptic here and we're not saying that God's against us and God has forsaken us and God has, has left the building or that there's no point in this or that I can't or we need to quit and we can't go on. We're not doing that today. This will give you what you need to be able to stand strong, to be able to get in the middle of that river and even though the current is trying to topple you over, to still have that stability. And God wants this for you. I hope that you can tell yourself today, God wants me to be a stable Christian, because he does. He doesn't want you to be blown around by the winds left and right. He wants you to be stable. And if you can, if you can, go back, remember the provision, rest in the promises, then you'll be able to resolve today's perseverance. You'll be able to say, today, I'm going. I'm, I'm keeping it up.
I had you underline the phrases as we went through there, so I won't go back and reread them all, but then you'll have the ability to say, I'm not throwing away my faith. I'm not casting away my confidence. I, I need patience. Yes, I need the ability to bear up under the freight and the weight of life. I need this, but I know I'm not of them that draw back. I'm not a Mr. Temporary. I am of them that believe, and I'm going forward. I'm not weary. I'm not fainting in my mind. I'm going forward. You get the balance there? You get what God is saying? He's not saying, he's not saying, well, you just need chicken noodle soup for your soul. You know, just think positive thoughts. Nor is he saying, you know what? Don't even think about it. Just stop sniveling. Buck up. Get over it. He's not saying either of those things. It's very balanced. He's saying engage your mind to where it needs to be. Think about my provision, rest of my promises, and see if that doesn't give you strength. With that being said, take out your communion cups. We're going to take communion. I'm going to connect the dot for you that perhaps you've never connected before. Now, before we observe communion, let me say, if you're in the room and you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, this is for you. You're invited to do it. You don't have to be a member of the church. You could be an out-of-town guest. You're more than welcome to join with us. If you're in the room and you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'll put it the way that, that Hebrews 12 put it. He endured the cross for you, and there was a joy that was set before him, the joy of accomplishing salvation for mankind. That the big story of the Bible is that God created us, and we rebelled, and we committed high treason against him, and we loved our sin, and we ran away from him. By an infinite cost to himself, he came and he pursued us and he dies on a cross to win us back and to bring us back. And not only will he save us, but he will make all wrong things right. He will make all sad things untrue and we will live with him forever one day. And if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, then you can do that right here, right now. You can call out to him in faith and ask him to be savior of your soul. And I hope that you will. But for those of us that are taking communion, I want you to understand something. We do communion, why? Well, because Jesus said. Well, okay, kind of. Why did Jesus say? Remember what he said? He said, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And so we stop communion and we remember that he died for us, that he gave his body for us, that he gave his blood for us. Why? Is that just a weird habit, a weird exercise? No, there's a point. The point is to help us be strong and sturdy. And we don't just remember. Some people think of communion as just remembering the past, but we look forward to the promises, right? As often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death, past, till he come, future. You do both at the same time. But you think about what he's done and the provision he's given, but you also think the promises that he has in store for us. So this is a time for us to literally live out Hebrews 10 and 11 and 12 and to put it into practice in a tangible way. And this is so important for us to stop and to remember. You know, in the Old Testament, they had all these habits and traditions and days where they would remember, right? Right? They had Passover and Feast of Tabernacles and all these days that were spiritually significant. But there's one that jumps out at me in the book of Samuel where Samuel 
wants to remember that the Lord had helped them. And he takes a big rock, and he stands it upright, and he says, you know that rock? We're going to call it Ebenezer. Not Ebenezer Scrooge, Ebenezer. And he says, that means that the Lord hath helped us. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. And he said, I want every time we go by that rock to remember God helped us. God showed up. That became a loose term, a colloquialism that they would use on what's your Ebenezer. It became a, a term that was even used in hymnody over the years. We don't use it much anymore, but you would see this in even uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. That old classic hymn has a stanza and it says this. It says, here I raise my Ebenezer. Here I raise the, the thing that I remember. God's help in my life. Here by thy great help I've come. And then he says this, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. And that, the author of that hymn said, I'm going to do what Hebrew said. I raise my Ebenezer and remember you've helped me. And I also, by that same hope, know that I'm going to arrive safely in heaven and I can rest in those promises. And so in a way, you could say what we're doing in communion is we're raising Ebenezers. In a way, what we're doing is remembering that he's going to come and that his promises are sure. And if he came once, he'll come again. And we stop and we do this together. So I'm going to give you two minutes. I'm going to give you your own time. I'm going to be quiet to pray. The pianist is going to play softly, and I want you to talk to the Lord. I want you to put into practice what we just talked about. Go back for a minute and remember how good God's been in your life. And then go forward for a minute and think about all of the treasures and all of the blessings that he has in store for us that are as sure as your salvation is. Let's take a minute and let's do it.
could take that piece of bread out of the cup there. First Corinthians 11 tells us that the same night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he gave thanks for the bread, he broke it, and he said, take eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. pray one more time and I'm going to lead us together in a prayer before we take the juice. (laughs) Father in heaven, we thank you that as we have walked through these portions of scripture in Hebrews 10, 11, and 12 that we hopefully are reminded afresh and anew that you are faithful. And because you're faithful, we can be faith-filled. That we can trust you, that we can rest in you, that we can look back at Habakkuk's and Abraham's and Enoch's and Noah's and Abel's and Moses's and all of these uh, ancients who had faith in you and you sometimes delivered them, sometimes did not, but you were always there and you always held them through and gave them stability. Lord, I thank you that we can look back in our own personal lives at you saving us, at you redeeming us, at even the personal testimonies we have of when you have come through and when you have flexed your muscles on our behalf. I think about the stories in our church corporately. I think about the stories in my own personal family. I think, you, I think about my own story and how faithful and how good you've been. And Lord, there have been dark days. There have been moments of doubt. Sure there have. But on the whole, I can look back and I can see you loving and guiding and control. But Jesus, we also thank you for these promises that you will come, that heaven is real, that you will make all the sad things untrue, that there won't be a need for fantastic Saturdays because we'll all hear, that there won't be a need for confession of our sin because it will be gone. Your kingdom will come, the lion will lay with the lamb, that all these promises are sure and true. And we know this first and foremost because of what you have done in the past, primarily in the cross. Jesus, right now we stop and we remember that, that you would die for us, that you would give your body for us, that you would shed your blood for us, the greatest demonstration of love, that you would give your life, that you would be forsaken by the Father, that you would in many ways swallow hell for us, And Lord, if that doesn't prove that you're faithful, that you're good, that you love, that you care, that you're not indifferent, then I don't know what does. Help us to remember this and may it give us a stability and a spiritual energy and vigor because of your sacrifice. I pray that the gospel would not just be this diving board that enters us into Christianity, but it would be this pool that we swim in that is where we live, where we rest. Jesus, thank you for shedding your blood. It is in your name that we pray and we praise your precious name. Amen. Paul continues with the same idea in 1 Corinthians 11, remembering that night, that meal. And he says that after the same manner, just like he took the cup when he had supped, he took the this cup and said, this is the New Testament in my blood. 
this do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as ye eat this bread and ye drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Well, I pray that this week, through communion, through night of worship, and through your own personal private disciplines, that we can remember more and we can look forward more and we can thank the Lord Jesus more. I want to thank you guys for coming today. I want you to know that I love you. It's a privilege to be your pastor. Uh, before we dismiss, I do, I need to point out Don. Don's joining the church today. I forgot that earlier. I'm sorry, Don. Wave at us. On your way out, say hey to Don. If, if you're glad that he's coming to join the church, would you say a big amen? amen? And last but not least, you can clap. That's great. Let's end on this note. If Jesus has been good and faithful in your life, say a big amen. That's right. That's true. Church, I love you. All right, you're dismissed.